Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Clark. For the last decade, I've had the privilege of learning from impactful leaders across the globe through my service in the Peace Corps and nonprofits. Their leadership has inspired me to highlight those among us who are truly impacting our world so that we may learn from them and be more impactful together. Yes, leadership can be learned. The guests on our show are providing direction, inspiration, and leading the way in their business and community through service. Are you ready to have an impact? Welcome to the Impactful Leaders Podcast. So um, again, thank you for being here today, Chris. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, So could you explain a little bit about your story, how you got to where you are? And then I have some questions that I kind of wanted to dig into because with the experience that you've had when I was going through your LinkedIn, I was like, holy cow, like, like, and you just mentioned while we were talking, you kind of started a blog before blogs were kind of a thing. So you have a way of like coming up with these innovative ideas and like how, that's what I kind of want to dig into. How do you, how do you come up with them? How do you keep that going? And then, yeah, so I'll let you take it away first. Yeah. Well, let's see, where did I start? Where do I get to? Where am I at? Uh, so I've told the story and anybody who has listened to any of my other content, uh, you'll know that I started a long time ago at a movie theater and started selling popcorn and taking tickets and cleaning theaters. And it was a job that I really loved doing. And I remember, I haven't shared this story too many times, but I remember it was like maybe the second month that I was working at the theater and I'm a young guy and high school still really. And I'm cleaning up and there was this event that we had in the lobby of the movie theater for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the event was a pizza tasting contest. And we had got pizza from all of the different pizza companies around the theater to come in for a blind taste test, who has the best pizza? Of course, if you're familiar with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that's where the pizza is coming from. Anyway, the event was over and I was there cleaning up. I'm just some kid cleaning up, right? Like clean up this mess. And in the lobby was the owner of the movie theater and a couple of executives from different uh, studios. And it was as simple as this there was a couple of drink cartons and I picked up a drink carton and it was filled. And I thought, you know, instead of actually pouring this entire thing into a trash bag, I'm going to dump out the liquid and then put the paper into the trash bag. I to me, that was like, that's what you do. But later I had like the vice president of some studio come up and say, like, how did you know to do that? Like, what do you mean? Like, it's just just what you do, right? No, because the common practice was like, just fill up the trash bag with stuff. And all of a sudden you have this whole lake of liquid underneath the, you know, in the trash bag that you're trying to throw away. And then it gets cut and then there's a hole and then it's dripping through the lobby. And like, I've seen it all over the years. And to me, it was just such a natural instinctual thing to do. The next day I was promoted to a key holder. (laughs) You're like, we've never promoted somebody so fast. And I was like, well, okay. And, and that was the starting point. Like, like, okay, use logic 
and be yeah. promoted. You know, like, is it really this simple? Uh, I, I guess on some level it was. And, and so across my career, I fiddled around with things in media and in entertainment. Uh, technology was a passion of mine, uh, business and how business operated. And then I began to see the correlation between technology and business and began to try to figure out ways to bridge the gap. And as I did that, the need for that type of insight and the leadership for that type of insight of, of understanding how business and technology collide became a lot more powerful. You talk about blogging and the introduction of uh, the internet. And as we began to experience more things online, uh, creating websites and destinations and experiences of data and content, all of that was part of what I was doing. And then it just naturally grew from there all the way up until today where I'm at Google and I spend all of my time bridging the gap between business and technology. Still today, that is a challenge for a lot of organizations. And that is all I've done really, if I think about it throughout my entire career is just look at ways to bring people together and share different perspectives on things to try to create new ideas, innovative experiences, and ultimately to meet the needs and expectations of consumers. And so I think that's how we can frame the rest of our conversation is just in that, you know, perspective is bridging the gap and then also, you know, focusing on consumers. What's the main gap that you see that most businesses have in common when it comes to jumping in using technology in a creative way or in a, not necessarily creative, but just using it in general? Well, there's two primary problems that we see in a lot of companies. And the first one is what we've already talked about. The technology teams and the business teams don't talk together. They don't actually collaborate. And so usually it's technology, I'm going to go build something. And business is like, you know, what are you building? And then how can I sell it? As opposed to actually saying, hey, we have customers asking for this and we know that if we were to build this, it's going to generate us profit. How can we build this? How can we make this happen? And let's collaborate together and work as a team to come up with it, right? Mm -hmm. The silos of the organization are one of the biggest problems. The other piece is really just around not knowing what to build. There's a lot of ideas there's a lot of opinions and sometimes you've got to access those opinions to try and see what might work or might not work. But that opinion can be influenced by data and by actual information to, uh, to make sure that it's the right path to be on. And again, I, I think what we see often is, oh, this is the next big thing. We should go do it oh, this is my idea, we should do it. Well, how do you know that's the correct thing to do? Yeah. And so you're often wasting time and money and effort, energy, resources on developing things that you can't even validate are going to work. And then what happens is why isn't anybody buying this? Why isn't anybody using it? The famous question. Yeah. It, that's... I was speaking to someone uh, earlier last week and they were using the metaphor of when you're in a car 
and they kept saying, stay in your lane. What happens if you, if we've all seen it when you're going down the highway and you see people flying by you, what do we all do? Go into the other lane. And the next thing you know, <laughs> the lane next to you is going fast. So it's like, if you see people doing all these things, hopping on TikTok trends or whatever. So I guess what strategies have you seen now? I mean, you've worked with Fox, you've worked with Google. How do you guys figure out, is it worth going into that lane? or staying where you are and continuing down your path. Cause that's such a difficult, like when you have that destination set, how do you know if it's the right destination? How hopefully you're evaluating and looking at data and you, that can influence the decision, but I'm sure some of it has to come with some gut or yeah. How do you guys tackle that? Yeah. I mean, there's two main approaches to that. One is you just try it, experiment, <laughs> invest a little bit in it, right? Uh, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying things. And I think that can be insightful. Mm -hmm. There was a time in technology where it was, you know, like everybody has a website. We have to have a website. Okay, well, you know, maybe that makes sense. But then you get to a point like, oh, everybody is doing this thing. We've got to also do it. Well, that thing would cost you like a million dollars. Yeah. And it's like, well, do I want to invest a million dollars in this thing just to test it out to see if yeah. it may or may not work? Today, that million dollars is a little cheaper, right? It, it might be $1,000. So for an organization to say, hey, I'm going to invest $1,000 into this thing to just experiment with it and see if it works, I think that's a little bit more valid today. Yeah. That experimentation, though, is also critical because it's going to give you data and insights to see if it's something that people want. Now, you can figure that out before you invest in it. The easiest thing is to actually ask your customers. You, you mentioned TikTok. So an example of this might be, and again, I'm just throwing this out as a, yeah. a silly idea, but uh, it might be somebody like um, McDonald's and McDonald's says, hey, would you like to order cheeseburgers on TikTok? If we made that capability a reality, like, would you do that? Well, they might get a thousand people responding saying, no, I'm never going to order my cheeseburgers on TikTok. Well, okay, that's data. And then you say, well, that's a bad idea. Let's you yeah. know, move on. Like, you don't actually have to invest in anything. You just have to start asking the questions and asking the right questions to determine if it's going to be something interesting or not. If you get the data back and it says, yeah, like people are thinking, yeah, man, I would love to order cheeseburgers on TikTok. Well, now let's actually spend a little time and effort and energy and prototyping that, like building a, a test and seeing if it works and seeing if people actually do it. And then if they do, then that's more data, that's feedback that you get that you can then continue to iterate and build better products. And mm. that cycle of taking the data, making decisions, building something, iterating on it, getting feedback of its success, and then repeating the process so that you can continuously evolve and improve. That's really what we're talking about. But the key pieces of it are asking the right questions and then leveraging the data so that you can make the change. What recommendations that you see on bringing up those right questions. I mean, I'm part of it. You have to have the right team around you and have the right person that allows those, maybe those crazy ideas at the beginning, allowing them to kind of move up the ranks. I think 
I believe last time when we spoke, um, I mentioned when an organization is growing, how do you, we see this tendency for like an institution, institutionalization to dampen the inspiration, dampen that spark. So like, how do you keep that alive to allow those important questions to come out that may seem outside of the box, but they need to come up to spark that innovation, that creativity, that whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, there's two pieces in there. One is you're talking about providing a culture within the organization that allows for questions to be asked. And mm. same thing, there's a lot of times where organizations just say, oh, we, we've got this, you know, we've got a team in place, they, they're going to figure that out. When in reality, there's somebody probably in, you know, a couple of buildings over that has the right questions, and you're ignoring it. So you can't do that. You've got to be able to build that culture that allows for questions and, and allows for people to challenge the status quo and allows for people to ask different types of questions. The, the questions themselves are also challenging because a lot of times we get caught in the, I know what response I want to receive. So I'm going to ask the question to get that response. And that's not the right way to do it. No. Right. And self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. So you've got to be able to have a set of questions that are going to be uh, broad and specific and challenging. You know, and, and the challenging part is, is often the most difficult part for organizations because the fear is, is that if I challenge my customer to answer something, I might not want to get the response back. That is the real and correct response. Or I might alienate that customer in some way and I lose them as a customer. But we see time and time and time and time again, especially in our own personal relationships, uh, co-worker relationships, that the more honest and transparent you can be with each other, the more genuine the connection and the more you're going to be able to provide what that consumer ultimately wants. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to just get what you want to get out of it, then you're not getting accurate information you're going to ultimately make poor decisions and you're going to end up investing and building in something that the consumer doesn't want. And the consumer is going to be thinking like, I told them what I wanted, like, didn't they listen? <laughs> so you've got to be challenging. You've got to ask tough questions and, and, and get those insights because ultimately it's just going to be more authentic. It's going to be more real. That's why maybe sometimes anonymous surveys are better. But even if you think beyond those anonymous surveys, you still have to ask like, yeah. what can we do to improve our service? And be ready to get genuine, hard, factual you know, responses back. Yeah, I, I love that. Because especially people always talk about authenticity of being a leader or being a manager, leading other people. But I think the the real extra stuff, anyone can be authentic. You can be a manager and be authentic, but then the next step is how do you allow the other people, what you're talking about, to be authentic themselves, to allow that to, to grow and foster. Like that is what really allows that to happen. And then, so once you have those questions coming up, how do you, 
like with Google, what do you, I'm sure you have lots of brilliant minds in there. We all know how Google runs, but it's also huge. So when those questions come up, how do you develop like the proper strategy between that innovative question and where you know the market is supposed to go? Like, how do you bring those two things together? Especially when you have something as big as Google, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, look, there's a, there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of frameworks actually that are out there that talk about different ways for innovation and idea generation. Um, there's a process we call design thinking. Design thinking. Design thinking. There's, there's probably thousands of websites and articles out there about what design thinking is mm -hmm. and what the process of that looks like. So the framework is going to guide you in the steps. The best way I can kind of summarize this is, and it's something I'm passionate about, is the user is always first. So if you, if you start with that, like the user is always first, the user is always first, and, and what you're trying to do is solve a problem for the user. So you have to understand, well, what are the user's problems? And maybe that's a question, like mm -hmm. what are the things that you struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis mm -hmm. and understand that. That's the starting point. What a lot of teams and different organizations will do is assume they know, like I know what the customer problem is because I know what the customer problem is. I've got an idea to solve that problem and I'm going to build it. Yeah. You're just assuming. I said once before, if you assume you know what the customer wants before asking what the customer wants, you're ultimately going to lose that customer. And why is that? Because you're ultimately going to buy, you're going to build something that they don't want because you're, you know, you're jumping to that conclusion. Yeah. So this is an example of where do you begin challenging, you know, and asking the right questions is, is you say, look, I, I don't know what you want. So why don't you tell me what you want? You know? Um, so you start to uh, take that perspective, customer first, asking them what they want and, and using that as data to help you uh, make the next decision. From there, you can begin to say, okay, in this context, the, the user has said, this is my problem. Now let's start generating ideas to help solve that problem. And you might come up with 10, 15, 20 different ideas. Mm -hmm. And then you begin to narrow it down and you start asking other types of questions. And then you ultimately have to go back to the customer and say, okay, we've gone through these steps. Now, if we were to do A, B, and C with you, would that help you? Would that solve your problem? And they might say, yeah, I really like A and B, but no, C, that's stupid. Like, could you do D instead? And then you're like, oh, more data, continue the process, iterate, right? So that framework is in place for a lot of the different things that we do at Google and a lot of the ways that people can, can build software. You know, we talk about like agile methodologies yep. for software development. Like that's nothing more than a framework. You're either going to do it or not. And there's thousands of organizations that are doing agile or they're doing sort of agile or they're doing partly agile or, you know, uh, 
agile fall or you know any number of different yeah, terminologies yeah. because they're not quite there but they're doing some of it same thing with design and design processes and innovation strategies and uh you know teamwork development there's frameworks that are successful and you're either going to execute some of it or none of it or all of it or whatever and those frameworks work you know that's how we approach it at google and uh, we have lots of documentation and, and information out there that's available for free that you can go and look and you can see our innovation strategies and design thinking approaches. So uh, I would look at those and, and replicate them. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, the design thing. I'm going to have to dig into it more. So then when you have these frameworks, how does that work with... Sorry, I'm, <laughs> um, when you have these things coming up, and then so we mentioned the institutionalization, dampering on those inspiration, how does that connect with like the culture of what you're trying to build? Because all of these things come together eventually, like you're going to need those brick, that spirit. So these frameworks, you don't want people just in these frameworks because anyone can move along those processes. But then how do you keep the culture with it? Because they have to go together. I or I'm assuming, I haven't worked in a company like Google, but I'm assuming they have to go together. You have to have those creative minds that have that freedom to do what they do or think how they think. Yeah, I mean, there's the employee side, the team side of actually coming up with the ideas and, and strategizing those ideas and executing the framework but there's also a cultural piece of this, which is the ability to do it all. So an example of that is I can sit down with a large organization and run through a design thinking workshop and come up with some fascinating new idea. And this could be like flying cars, you know, meets uh, <laughs> TikTok ordering uh, with a, you know, self-driving cheeseburger delivery system, whatever, like, yeah. <laughs> like I, we could come up with the most fascinating idea, but it never gets built. And why doesn't it get built? Like everybody in the room was on board. Everybody from that team is like gung ho and an into it and coming up with the ideas, but the organization itself is blocking it because of bureaucracy or because of processes or because of the culture or positioning like, oh, uh, the, that's a great idea. I'm going to take that idea for myself and I'm going to present it and com competition. And all of those things are hindrances to innovation and the ability to execute brilliant ideas. And so you have to not only have people that are willing to do it, but you have to have leadership and cultures that allow it to manifest and happen. And both are critical because it's very easy for ideas to get squashed. Uh, the most common thing I hear is, yes, this is a brilliant idea, but that's just not how we do things. Well, why not? Like a brilliant idea. <laughs> it's a brilliant idea. And what you're saying is basically you're, I, I, you could generate $50 million in additional revenue, but you're not going to do it. Okay, like whose decision is that? 
Yeah. And what's really interesting is there's often this perception from the uh, the organization that they can't do it. Like, oh, uh, this would never fly. You know, oh, no one would ever approve us doing this. But then you have this conversation of like $50 million. You go to the CEO and you say, hey, if we do this idea, you're going to generate $50 million. And they're like, well, why aren't we doing it? Exactly. So there's this disconnect between like the C-suite and the leadership teams and the everyday, you know, uh, staff. And that has to be also fixed because if there's this perception that nothing can get done, but the leadership is like, yeah, we're all, let's do it. How do you solve that as well? So always people and leadership have to be on the same page. You have to create that culture for the innovation and allow things to happen. As long as, again, you know, I, 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 I've said data, $50 million in revenue. Well, can I prove that? Well, I shouldn't be presenting it if I can't prove it, right? I, I'm not just pulling some you number hope. out of the air, right? So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I've got proof that consumers want it. I've got proof that it can bring value to the organization. I've got proof that we can build it. Why aren't you building it then? Why aren't you going to sea level and saying, look, here's the proof, here's the validation, give us authorization, right? Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And what really sticks to me, especially on that first part, when you're talking about getting the feedback from the users, uh, the user is always first. It, there's so many parallels between nonprofit and for-profit. A lot of people think there's they're on two ends of the spectrum. Really, nonprofit, a lot of people forget, is a business. They're out to serve something, and they have to make it work somehow. They still need money. Um, a lot of people think just because it's non -for like not for-profit that they don't have profit, and that's not kind of like the biggest misconception. But if you have a, a, a not-for-profit out there We've seen it before, or even government entities where they try to force things on the people. If you're not talking to the community to see what are the issues that they're having, it's going to fall on flat. You know, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So I love that you mentioned that. Um, yeah, that's because <laughs> again, it's just, it's, it's so tough, especially when we're working with one of my clients is really starting to grow at this point and I'm trying to connect them with the right people to help bring those strategies. How do you stay ahead? And you're also talking about back in the day, a million dollar idea, like that, those were the websites, but people didn't have them. Now, those are the softwares, maybe like the Salesforce, the CRMs, or even building apps. Everyone's trying to build apps right now. Um, what are some of the big trends that you see in the digital transformation, the digital space that are coming up that you think will become that aren't necessarily for the medium small businesses, but they're on the way. So like the next website, the next TikTok, those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I would love to know that. Uh, but <laughs> well, I mean, you can yeah, see no, some no, of no, the no. projections though. Yeah, look, what we are seeing are things like uh, not just an increase usage of devices, but connections that are across everything that we are engaged with. So mm -hmm. think about it like this. 
Uh, you have a mobile device in your hand, but you engage with multiple types of screens regularly. And when you go to the gas station, there's actually a screen there. Yeah. And in theory, that screen can have uh, different types of applications on it, no different than your mobile device does. Uh, your uh, television is basically a larger screen and same thing, it has applications on it mm -hmm. so that you can go to you know, uh, Hulu or Netflix or you know, your favorite television show. Um, all of these devices are now becoming interconnected. So you've got your smart home and you might have a Google device and you can tell Google to turn on your TV and turn it to a specific channel. And that's just going to extend because now we've got, uh, we've got screens that are in our cars and like I said, gas stations and grocery stores. And uh, you go even into a restaurant now and some of the ordering systems are on screens. Like that connection and connectivity is going to become increasingly more connected, right? So, you know, I use the silly example of TikTok ordering McDonald's, but in reality, like, I could tell Google sitting here right now, uh, place an order for Domino's pizza, and it's going to not only know what I want to order and have the credit card mm -hmm. on file and my address, it's going to automatically deliver. There's no need for me to log into like dominoes.com and place an order, right? It, it's all connected. And I'm going to, uh, that's going to continue to evolve. There's going to be mm -hmm. more opportunities for more types of interconnectivity between the things that you do between like, again, think about you're in your car and you're driving home and you've got uh, Google maps on the system and it knows where the closest grocery store is and it knows what your favorite brand of ice cream yeah. is. And you can uh, place the order and have curbside pickup as you're driving home and then have your favorite show on Netflix ready to watch <laughs> so that when you park, you come out and it's starting and you're eating your ice cream. Like that entire experience is a reality today, but you're just not seeing it. It's going to become more of a reality. More fluent. Right. So even if you think about it from like, we'll say nonprofit perspectives, the ability to find donations, the ability for uh, volunteers, the ability to connect with uh, people that you're serving, and then to bridge the gap between the technology to make all of that more fluid I think you're going to see become a lot more prevalent. Uh, yeah. That's one of the biggest trends. You know, we can get into the metaverses and the web 3.0 and all of that kind of stuff, which no one, no one, no matter what they say, no one can predict that that's actually going to become a reality. But sure, we can start talking about like, yeah, we forecast things like, flying cars and virtual reality and robotic delivery systems and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, people are working on that stuff. Heck, there's a scientist in Japan that has created a taste TV that you can actually lick the screen and taste what's on the screen. No way. Like, yeah, yeah, look it up You while we're talking. Uh, taste TV Japan. Um, so yeah, there's plenty of sci-fi things that are out there that we're thinking about. Uh, what might become a reality? Who knows? But what we see in terms of trends, it's going to continue to be consumer first, no matter what. And they're going to continually want to engage with you through the technology that's in their hands.
that is insane. I mean, it looks like a huge TV though. But still, I mean, I'm sure that is crazy. I had not heard about that. <laughs> but I mean, I love what you're saying about, are you familiar with WeChat? Yeah. That story of what you're saying from you're driving home from work, the grocery store in, you're on your way home, it knows what you want to want. That whole fluid motion and story, I feel like is WeChat's a little bit different. It doesn't do it automatically. You kind of have to go in there, but I don't think people realize like you don't have to leave the app at all to do all of those things within WeChat. Do you think that's do you think that's even possible? I guess it could be possible if it was like a Google or something on, on that line, but the power of that would be. Yeah, the, the technology is here. What we find, there's two, today is the day of two things. There are two <laughs> uh, elements to it that we uh -huh. are currently, we'll say, challenged with. The first one is, is that you often don't have businesses that are unrelated sharing data between each other. So as an example, uh, I'm in my car and I'm passing by an Albertsons grocery store, or we'll just say a grocery store. Mm -hmm. um, the map knows that there's a grocery store there. The map knows every business that's nearby as I'm driving by it. That's why I can say like closest um, gas station and it will find the closest gas station. Now we're also starting to see like, uh, the rates of gas, like how much is gas. And then I can pick, like, find the closest gas station that is the cheapest and it will navigate me to. So there's elements that are there, but that data is often not being shared. So now it's not, oh yeah, there's a grocery store that's coming up in five miles. But it's can the car that I'm driving and the map that sees the grocery store, can it go to the next level and make the order happen? Mm -hmm. so usually we have to exit out and go to another app. Think about it like this from a traveling perspective. How many applications do you use when you travel? And uh, there I could be think of three. three, probably like music or podcast, your map. I guess those are like really the main two and then maybe phone or text or whatever it is just to, to delay them if to go to the Bluetooth. But there's more, right? Okay, so let's break it down. When I travel, especially if I travel on business, yeah. there's the airline app because I have okay. to book okay. my flight. Yep. There's potentially Uber or a taxi service because once yep. I get to my destination, I've got to get into a car to go somewhere. If it's not an Uber or a taxi, it's a car rental service. Mm -hmm. Then there is the hotel that I'm staying at. So I have to go to the hotel and check in and book my room. Yeah, or even then, for that clear too. I mean, you, you add that into the, exactly. like two, three apps within airports too. Exactly. And, and then maybe I'm listening to music or watching something on the TV Thinking while I'm on the flight. Uh, and then we get into, okay, I want to go to a restaurant and I make reservations and then I've got my calendar because I've got some events and maybe I'm going on an excursion. So I've got to double check when my booking times are and so on and so on. And every single one of those transactions is a different application. Yeah. But let's think about it really. Why couldn't I have that entire experience seamless? 
so that the Uber or taxi or rental car knows that I'm on a plane and I'm about to land and where I'm landing and where I need to go because it also knows what the hotel is. And why can't I connect that experience together so that my travel all is a seamless journey and I don't have to basically go to seven different apps and open up seven different things to, to confirm seven different individual activities. My personal experience is I'm taking a trip, right? Yeah. And today we don't really think about it. We just think, oh yeah, I've got to open up an application and here's my ticket. Oh, I've got to order an Uber and order the Uber. But there's a much easier way to do that. And we can do that today. We just don't. And the consumer hasn't really demanded it. The consumer is like, yeah, as long as I have an app to fulfill this specific need that I have, great. <laughs> but we have to start thinking about this more broadly and, and think about what that overall journey is and then find ways to make and complete the journey through all of the devices and technologies and applications that we're using. The user comes first. User comes user first. Journey, that user experience. At the end of the day, the easier you make it for someone, they'll never leave. And I think that's why when I first started learning about WeChat, that is what really blew me away. The fact that when you're looking, when you're talking about looking for restaurants, my brain even went like, I usually look at reviews, you know? So it's like in WeChat, you can just, that would be amazing if that was able to pull off. And then when you were mentioned like nonprofits and comparing it to donors and finding their experiences and being able to tell that story, I mean, that is, and that's the thing about this whole digital transformation that is just remarkable to see unfold. We talk about restaurants and I've got, I don't want to say two. I need, I need a third one, a three. I'll do three somewhere. I'll make it up. Uh, th there's, um, there's one experience that I really want to talk about, and then we can yeah, extrapolate yeah, no, please, on that, which is um, uh, Disneyland. Disney. Disney World, Disneyland. Anybody who's ever been to Disney, you know, theme parks. Um, I was a, an annual pass holder. I have been for years. I go to Disneyland. Here's what's so interesting about ordering food at Disneyland. They've now gotten to the point where there's uh, mobile ordering so I could place my order on the phone mm -hmm. and then go to a window and pick it up. I can order it and pay for it all right there. But there's still something missing in the experience. Uh, sometimes I will travel with uh, somebody who uh, might have a, a specific um, uh a dietary restriction, you know, uh, vegetarian, vegan, yeah. you know, uh, gluten-free, whatever, you know. And what's amazing is that when I go into Disneyland and the number of times I've been into Disneyland and the, and, and the knowledge that they basically have because they know what I usually order when I go into Disneyland, <laughs> that it doesn't understand who I am, what my dietary restrictions are, or what I potentially want to order. Right. So we think about the, the travel. Imagine a world where I actually don't have to do the reviews. I don't have to go look at reviews. I don't have to actually go look at orders, but there's artificial intelligence and machine learning that says, 
I know what Chris likes to eat, and I'm going to go look at the reviews. And these reviews are very powerful and good. And it's uh, cuisine that he likes and dietary restrictions that he has. And I'm going to automatically uh, do a reservation for him. And I'm going to just send it to his phone. And all I do is, oh, I've got a reservation that, you know, my AI friend has picked for me and made the reservation and knows all of my requirements. And I just show up at the restaurant and I sit down and, uh, you know, and something is placed in front of me. That is incredible and it's new because, you know, basically I had somebody go through my preferences and my history and know me and do it, you know, for me. Like that today is possible. But same thing, we don't do it. Like the Disneyland experience, there should be no reason that I have to go to a separate menu to find like vegan options. It should already know which by the way, I'm not vegan, but uh, as an example, uh, it should know like Chris is a vegan. I'm only going to display vegan options. In the last 20 times he's been at the park, he has ordered vegan options and I'm going to make a recommendation. Would you like me to place this particular item for order at this particular time? Because we also see that you usually eat at the park at this same time every time you go. Like that's all data that can be processed through artificial intelligence and machine learning to personalize the experience for me so that when I go to, you know, my uh, theme park, it's already thought out, it's already done, and it's already known, and it's already personalized. You can apply that same principle to, again, almost every business and nonprofit to personalize that journey and make it more relevant and seamless for them. And powerful, yeah. And powerful, yeah. I, I love everything that you're saying. I hope we get there one day. Obviously, it's going to take, there are certain people that still, when it comes to, like when we do digital marketing, I still work with some people that do print. Like we still do the whole part of the puzzle, but once we get some of those change agents in there to really push this stuff forward, it's going to it's gonna come together. But we're coming up on the end of the hour, Chris. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything that you shared with us in your time today. Um, if people wanted to listen to more of your uh, the shows that you're on, read more, learn more from you, where should they go? Where should they check out? The best place to go would be just visit my website at chrishood.com. You get there, you can find all my social media profiles as well as my latest podcast or other podcasts that I've been on recently. So yeah, chrishood.com. Thank you so much, Chris. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much.